This is Skylar. I pop into the Commune podcast about once a year, usually sometime in May, to muse about mothering. So it only feels right that I should ask Jeff to lend his better half the mic to reflect on how motherhood has recently been seismically altered in America. Every August, I travel up to Northern California to visit my parents, and I ask my mom to write down her own reflections on abortion. She, like me, has been tracking the slow erosion of abortion rights in the U.S., and both of us found the Dobbs decision shocking and at the same time not at all surprising. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you know that one of Jeff's core beliefs is that it's through story that we have a better chance at navigating a path through the vitriolic wilderness of politics. And though I'm more of an extremist by nature, I do in the end usually follow him down life's middle path. So if you don't share my pro-choice stance, I hope you will still consider listening and with an open mind. And I welcome your stories and ruminations in return. This is Abortion Stories in Grayscale. What is identity and collective family identity but a collation of stories a fluid narrative of heroism, loss, passion, betrayal, unrequited love, perseverance, disaffection, solidarity. Stories about abortion are filed in the libraries of most families, legal, illegal, secret, tinged with relief or with regret. They certainly are in mine. The night that Phoebe, our first, was conceived, I had a sense, both physical and psycho-emotional, that I had gotten pregnant. It's hard to explain, but I truly felt it. And she was indeed born on her due date, pegged to that night. So you'd think, after a few pregnancies and a generally well-developed awareness of my body, that I'd have cultivated an instinct about being pregnant. But not so for round three. I was feeling fluish for a few weeks when a friend suggested I might be knocked up. I assured her that it was impossible, unless I was a most unlikely candidate for mothering the next baby Jesus. I was still nursing, hadn't yet had a period, and honestly, neither Jeff nor I could remember engaging in the one activity required for conception. But a few weeks later, when my symptoms persisted, I peed on the stick. Not only pregnant, but as we soon deduce, not just a little pregnant, 20 weeks at least. Shocked, appalled, no plans and no room for a third baby. Logistically completely unsound in our two-business Williamsburg Loft travel-heavy lifestyle, never mind being environmentally irresponsible to go beyond some zero procreation. Of course, I didn't relish the prospect of an abortion, and it always felt inordinately lucky that I made it to 40 with a very spotty record of contraception use and no unintended pregnancies. But it was the sane choice, and my mother made me enough of a practical farm girl so as not to feel squeamish at the prospect of aborting an unwanted fetus. Appointment made, the day came, and went. 
From one day to the next, I would sometimes quip afterward, I became a right to lifer. That joke has now soured on my tongue. Kit, my great-grandmother on my father's side, bent the arc of our family identity. She was a passionate suffragette and socialist who co-founded the organization that would become Planned Parenthood of Connecticut alongside Margaret Sanger. Sanger, parenthetically, has taken a thrashing recently for the eugenic slant of her lifelong struggle for women's rights. But to me, this only confirms the complexity of identity and heroism. Anyway, Kit bequeathed such a potent dose of feminism to our bloodline that even successive generations who leaned Republican remained staunchly pro-choice. When the Dobbs decision was handed down, one of my first thoughts was of her fury from the beyond. My mother's political pedigree is less burnished, but she is no less passionate a supporter of women's autonomy in a scrappy nurse-your-kids-till-they're-five kind of way. She is, of course, of the generation that bled for their right to abortion, while I've had the blithe attitude of someone who assumed that women's bodily autonomy was settled law. I've known the story of my mom's first abortion for as long as I can remember in all its lurid detail. It's always left me with the deep knowing that the issue is not black or white, and yet somehow the takeaway is still clear. I'll turn it over to my mom, Anne, for a bit. My first abortion could have gone badly, but didn't. I was 24 at the time, it was after the birth of our first child, so this must have been mm, 1968. He was very young, still crawling. As I am now 77, looking back, it feels like a long time ago. It was the dangerous time to be getting an abortion. I was lucky with that abortion. As I say, it could have gone sour. I fly into New York City from Florida, where my husband, Jack, and I are teaching at an alternative school. I had been assured by the staff at the school that this New York City abortionist was safe. I arrive from the airport to the house of a friend. I will be spending the night at his house, but first off to the abortionist. I take the bus there. I remember walking up the stairs of her apartment building. There were kids' bikes in the foyer of the modest apartment. She shows me into her bedroom. There's a clean white towel on the bed with some instruments beside it. I really don't notice what they are, but thinking back, probably a speculum and some sort of stainless steel poking sort of thing. She asked me to lie on my back at the edge of the bed, knees up and spread. I feel the speculum going in. I know this feeling. What does she do? I don't feel any pain. I suspect she punctured the cervical plug. She tells me to get home as quickly as I can. I ride the bus back to the friend's house. Halfway through the bus ride, I am cramping pretty badly. I get to his house. It must have been late afternoon, but I'm not remembering this. I'm remembering only that the cramps are pretty bad, worse actually than the contractions that I'd had with the first child. Yes, definitely worse. 
that child, Jason, is with me. Why ever did I bring him? I suppose I must have still been nursing him. Therefore, could not leave him behind. My memory is faulty here. The friend, John, had to have been caring for Jason while I was getting the abortion. John is completely useless for me. Apart from the child-minding, of course. Worse than useless, as he has the idea that we might get it on that evening. He had always had a thing for me, starting down there at the school in Florida where he, too, had been a teacher. But I really have no time to be fussed about his lechery, as I am having these intense contractions, and they go on all night or close to it. I do not sleep, but pace back and forth in his apartment. And then in the very early morning, leaning over hard, I push out a baby. Truly a baby. Very red, glistening, very tiny. The baby moved, squirmed, and I could see. Yes, a boy. Then still. I am in shock a bit, staring down. I had not expected this, maybe a blob of tissue. But, unfortunately for me, that first child, Jason, came crawling toward the glisten, and I scooped him up. He wanted to nurse, and I always did love nursing him. Perhaps the nursing helped the placenta to detach cleanly from the uterine wall. I don't remember any placenta coming out, but there had to have been one. I wanted to take the baby back to the school and bury it, but Jack really didn't want that to happen. Now, in retrospect, I don't blame him in any way. A dead baby and a suitcase at the airport? <laughs> but I so didn't want this little being to be thrown in the trash. A dilemma. The horny cipher proved useful in the end. He taught high school biology there in New York City and said he'd put it in formaldehyde and it would be an exhibit. The baby would easily fit in a two-quart mason jar. Okay. This first abortion could have been so much worse. The woman, she knew what she was doing. No infection. But did she know how far along I was? No, probably not. But not her concern. She did not puncture my uterus. The cramps were manageable on the bus ride. I didn't find myself in an emergency room, perforated. Jason, my nursling, was there to put a perspective on things. All in all, a happy ending. We did not want to be having another child at that time. We were living on a boat, close quarters, scant income. I had the second abortion about four and a half years after that first one. Skylar, our second child, had been born. Jack and I were going through a rough patch. Pregnant again? And the rough patch? They don't mix very well. We were on the Kaiser Permanente Insurance Plan. Off to the hospital. White walls, gurney, nurses. 
I have opted to have my tubes tied as well, since they'll be in there doing things. I am 29, young to say yes to sterility, but I don't trust this fertile but foolish couple that we appear to be. And I know deep in my bones that I could never go through another abortion. Once a week, Jack and I have our love day. We spend the whole day together doing this and that. One of our pleasures, fraught though it sometimes becomes, is listening to Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. She is a heroine of mine. I have the feeling that she's fighting a losing battle. But at the same time, I want to hope for her, for all of us women. Some years back, maybe 2018, we were listening while Amy interviewed the newly installed president of Planned Parenthood, who expressed her outrage at the latest attacks by the Trump administration on Planned Parenthood. Title 10 funding was to be taken away from any clinic that counsels abortion as an option, including Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood takes care of so many women, takes care of so many gynecological needs, prenatal care, uterine, cervical health, STDs, and birth control, which by definition includes counseling for and providing abortions. The Planned Parenthood president was saying, in essence, that Planned Parenthood is all about a woman's health. And abortion is one of the necessary options that must be available in order to provide health care to women. It's a health issue. Oh, she was fierce. An Asian-American, second generation. Her parents had fled Vietnam. A doctor. A woman needs to have the right to terminate pregnancy at any stage of the pregnancy. She gave an example of a woman who chose or wanted to have an abortion when she found out late in her pregnancy that the twin she was carrying would suffocate upon birth. Their lungs were hopelessly flawed. The doctor kept bringing the issue back to the common sense view of providing health. I am a doctor. Do no harm is our creed. Some women might die from a pregnancy. She gave an example of a woman who would have but for the availability of an abortion, they need to be able to abort. How long ago that now seems. A friend of mine, liberal like me, whatever that may mean, invited me to meet her and her mother for cocktails at a fun and fancy place. I arrived late. They were seated next to the fireplace at a round table, drinks already at hand. I sat down between the two of them. Marilyn, my friend, very blonde with blue slants for eyes, an arresting look. Her mother, also blondish and with youngish skin and the blue eyes, but not the slant, younger than me by a certain amount. Parenthetically here, it's really too bad how it is that even us old women can spend time noticing each other's fading or faded looks. Why bother? But we do. Aging looks is not my topic here. Marilyn asked me what Jack and I did on our love day. She so loves the concept. 
does not have a long-term love relationship. She asked, and I told her, that we almost always listened to Amy Goodman in the morning, and Marilyn said that she loved Amy Goodman and was always trying to get her mother to listen to it. This might have been a clue had I picked up on it, but no, I didn't. Forthwith, I launched into that last Friday's Democracy Now! about the newly installed Planned Parenthood president. Marilyn's mother crowded in on those words. Just about all those people do are abortions. My daughter, not this one, she said, gesturing toward Marilyn in an inclusive sort of way. My daughter got pregnant and went to them. She came home and told me that all, all they said to her was to get an abortion. All they said. She went on to have the baby and gave it up for adoption. Hmm, it's hard to come up with numbers and such when a personal story like that gets told and with such fervor. I felt just a bit set back on my heels. I had ordered my drink, a gin fizz. In my head, I had thoughts that would have refuted her assessment of Planned Parenthood, how they mostly deal with women in need of other gynecological issues, etc., etc. But how could I refute her daughter's experience? I needed to be careful. Hmm, that sounds rough for your daughter, I say, but I think Planned Parenthood, I know so many people that would love to adopt. There are so many out there. There's no need for abortions. Marilyn jumped in here and pretty fierce too, I have to say. You got to remember, Mom, that Sue didn't even tell anybody in the family that she was pregnant until she was six months along. And, she said, looking at me, that's kind of my sister for you. I got the impression that this sister was not so stable. Maybe not then, with the six months along, and maybe not now. Marilyn's mother said nothing for a while. I spoke up. Did I need to be saying this? I was still very on the side of Planned Parenthood, so maybe I had to. Maybe your daughter was just so shocked by the word abortion that maybe... That's the only thing she remembered from her appointment. Who knows? They might have said other stuff to her as well. Maybe, she conceded, but still she did the right thing. She had the baby and gave it up for adoption. Marilyn took a sip of her drink and then said, I had an abortion. The mom said to me, quiet-like, out of the side of her mouth, This is the first time I've heard this. Yeah said Marilyn. wasn't very long after Dee Dee was born, and I had that bad mastitis. The doctor told me I shouldn't have another child so soon. I'm so grateful that abortions are legal. Her mom was taking it in the neck. Her daughter and abortions and legal? More silence, and then I piled it on. I told the story of the twins with the flawed lungs who would suffocate upon birth. That was a late-term abortion, even more bad. At the very least, she could have given birth to them. They wouldn't have been murdered in the womb. She looked at me, and at the same time, passed me. Her blue, blue eyes, so certain, so sure. Marilyn and I were silent. Might as well let this slide on by. Have another gin fizz. Talk about the weather. She is one of that cohort. 
from the moment of conception, the unborn is precious, must be protected. This brings to mind a quote from a Methodist minister from Alabama, Dave Barnhart. Quote, You can love the unborn and advocate for them without substantially challenging your own wealth, power, or privilege, without reimagining social structures, apologizing, or making reparations to anyone. They are, in short, the perfect people to love. If you want to claim you love Jesus, but actually dislike people who breathe. Prisoners, immigrants, the sick, the poor, widows, orphans, all the groups that are specifically mentioned in the Bible, they all get thrown under the bus for the unborn. Nothing neat and tidy there. I've often wondered if my change of heart stemmed in part from my mom's experience that her complicated story helped beget our third child. Micah knows she was an unwanted pregnancy. We can joke about it because there's no question that she's profoundly loved. And of course, I can't fathom having aborted the fetus that grew into our daughter. But I also can't imagine the heartbreak of having been forced by any outside authority to reach that decision. Non-binary, that current cultural buzzword, applies so aptly to the issue of abortion. There is nothing black or white about this issue that has so roiled our country for the past half century, exploding like a wildfire in this brittle summer in America. No matter the law, abortions will happen. So where do we go from here? How do we come to consensus around an issue that is so emotional, so deeply personal, and yet so hyper-politicized? Just like individual and familial identity, our national story is a tapestry of narratives we tell ourselves about who we are. One thing that makes the dismantling of Roe so profoundly unsettling for the majority of Americans is that it is a rending of a core story we tell about ourselves, that our country, for all its many imperfections, is on a steady trajectory towards instantiating rights and protections for the once disenfranchised. What the Dobbs decision reveals about this fraught current moment is larger than the issue of abortion because there is not another example in the past hundred years since prohibition, to be precise, when a majority have lost a fundamental right, a right that is so tightly interwoven into our country's narrative that it is taken for granted. Being a global beacon of democracy and individualism is core to our national myth, but we've suddenly lurched backwards, even as several nations with long-imposed abortion bans like Mexico, Ireland, South Korea have recently liberalized. It's important to remember that historically, views on abortion rights did not fall neatly along party lines. When Roe v. Wade came down in the early 1970s, a majority of the GOP was pro-choice. Roe was decided with a 7-2 vote with mostly Republican-nominated justices in the majority, and the opinion was written by Harry Blackman, a lifelong Republican. In fact, before Roe, Republicans were more likely to favor legal abortion than Democrats. 
New York and Washington were two of the four states that fully legalized pre-viability abortion in 1970, and they had Republican governors who were at the forefront of abortion rights efforts. Even Reagan, who became a linchpin in the pro-life movement as president, expanded abortion rights when he was governor of California. And close to unanimous support for abortion rights among Democratic politicians was a slowly evolving political reality as well. The Northeast, with its heavily Catholic constituency, lagged behind many Southern states in adopting protections. It took decades for Republican elected officials to become almost monolithically opposed to abortion rights. In fact, the Southern Baptist Convention passed resolutions throughout the 1970s affirming the idea that women should have access to abortion and that the government should play a limited role in the matter. It wasn't until the 1980s that abortion was effectively weaponized as the hot-button culture war issue, and attitudes became increasingly siloed along party lines. Ironically, as the political heat ratcheted up, the actual rate of abortion in the U.S. began to steadily decline, with a very slight uptick in the last few years. Since a peak of approximately 1.5 million abortions annually in the early 1990s, numbers have been cut in half. Around 90% of abortions occur during the first trimester. Abortion pills, which can be taken up to 10 weeks of pregnancy, now account for half of abortions. That percentage will undoubtedly climb rapidly in the current climate. Second trimester abortions sit at about 6%, and third trimester abortions constitute less than 1%. This puts the late-term abortion, that most potent rallying cry for the right-to-life movement, at around 7,500 annually. And for to then factor in pregnancies that threaten the life of the mother or a fetus with severe abnormalities, we would be left with a handful of elective late second and third trimester abortions. In other words, the most contentious issue in the abortion debate is grounded in emotions and divergent ideologies, but it's just not supported by hard numbers. The vast majority of Americans support unrestricted abortion up until viability, which is around 23 or 24 weeks, and to protect the health of the mother and in the event of fetal abnormalities thereafter. Through the despair and anger that has inflected my worldview post-Dobbs, I am attempting to focus on the undeniable fact that we as a country do, in fact, walk the middle path on this issue. So if overturning Roe does not reflect a public rebuke of the pro-choice movement, poll after poll shows disapproval of the Dobbs decision, but it does reveal weaknesses and fissures within the left. Complex questions of medicine, morality, personal empowerment, the proper role of government, these are often reduced to the kind of all-or-nothing propositions that are emblematic of our current polarized country, on the left as well as the right. Though I personally lean quite liberal, I am deeply frustrated by progressives who categorically resist Big Ten thinking. At one time, a Democratic politician could express nuanced personal opinions about abortion while also promoting supportive policies. When Obama was the party's presidential nominee, he spoke of how Americans wrestled with the issue in good faith, saying that, quote, 
anybody who tries to deny the moral difficulties and gravity of the abortion issue, I think, is not paying attention, end quote. Holding a gradated view, however, is no longer acceptable. Taking this black or white position has weakened Democrats politically and legally. Democrats would be wise to expand the definition of pro-choice. The party platform should state that a woman's right to choose equally encompasses her right to have a baby without being punished economically. That reproductive choice is about the ability to choose to have an abortion as well as to choose to raise a family with dignity. That addressing issues like the epidemic of homeless mothers and children and the train wreck of our healthcare system are all part of the pro-choice agenda. In fact, the slow dismantling and eventual demise of Roe is inextricably tied to the early failure in our country to integrate abortion care into mainstream healthcare facilities. Unlike Canada and Europe, abortion services in America were siloed into clinics, which led to the psychological othering of abortion care from basic healthcare services. It also led to the logistical vulnerability of pregnant women and abortion providers to harassment and attacks by pro-life extremists. The story of women's rights has been and always will be interwoven with the issue of universal healthcare. These are core issues that the left needs to leverage. Democrats should once again propose legislation for a family subsidy to reveal where, in fact, Republicans stand in supporting women who are having babies willingly or unwillingly. Yes, extremists in both parties have a role to play in pushing their parties forward or backward, especially when it comes to divisive cultural issues. But as we sink further and further into the sinkhole of polarization, Democrats are more prone to sacrifice realistic policy goals in service of pursuing the ideals of their base. The Women's Health Protection Act, H.R. 3755, is a perfect example. The bill would create a federal baseline for abortion rights, preventing local governments from restricting care unless there is a compelling state interest to do so. It also empowers the Department of Justice to investigate and prosecute violators. I wholeheartedly support the aspirations of this bill, but more than that, I support pursuing a process that is grounded in current political reality. The WHPA has failed to pass through Congress since 2013, and not only because it lacks Republican support. It also fails to align all Democrats. This past February, after passing through the House, it was defeated in the Senate. Joe Manchin joined the only two pro-choice GOP senators in refusing to support it. They argued, in part, that the legislation does not provide sufficient protection to anti-abortion health providers like Catholic hospitals. Unless there is a filibuster carve-out for abortion rights legislation, it would be virtually impossible to pass this bill through the Senate as it now stands. But it would still be a worthy exercise in coalition building to create a baseline version of the WHPA that unites all Democrats and reaches across the aisle as far as possible. Both parties fall victim to performing for their base. But while Democrats usually sacrifice the real on the altar of the ideal, Republican activists have been much more pragmatic. They fought and often won measures that were far from their ultimate policy goals in service of a long-term vision. They were willing to ally themselves with anyone who served their ultimate aims. 
Will the left mire itself as it usually does in chasing the tail of ideological purity and waste precious energy on infighting instead of coalition building? I'm absolutely in support of the affirmation of life, pro-life, you might even say, at all stages of life. This to me includes everything from universal health care, extended maternity and paternity support, the right to die with dignity, and of abortion being safe, legal, and rare. This long-held tagline has fallen out of favor in the pro-choice movement, which to me exemplifies everything that's wrong with performative politics. To support fewer abortions hardly shames women who've opted for the procedure. It's an appeal for holistic healthcare that leads to fewer unwanted pregnancies. No one wants to have an abortion, but there can't be a single woman in human history who has intentionally gotten pregnant because she relishes the prospect of abortion by any means. So why doesn't the left appeal to common sense, tolerance over absolutism? I do my best to recognize that there are millions of well-meaning people behind the politics I so profoundly disagree with. I believe that most pro-life people are inspired by a genuine conviction that abortion is murder. But if pro-lifers are to be morally honest, they will see that American women have structured their lives for the last two generations on the bedrock of the availability of contraception and abortion. That losing an established right will be catastrophic for many and deadly for some. That the effects of abortion bans will impact poor women most severely and primarily in states that have the worst social services for those same struggling families. That most pro-lifers who condemn abortion as murder allow for other forms of socially sanctioned killing, like war, capital punishment, animals killed for food and research, and that they rarely account for the long-term effects of pregnancy and birth on women's bodies and minds. I'm someone who came into my childbearing years ostensibly very healthy. I was unaware that I had a congenital issue with one of my kidneys, which was further compromised by each successive pregnancy. Nine months in with Micah, my right kidney completely deteriorated and I spent weeks in excruciating pain. And trust me, after two unmedicated home births, I know my way around pain. Finally, a botched epidural during an emergency surgery left me horizontal with a splitting headache for 10 days before she was born, never mind the UTI and the yeast infection. I'll live with low-grade pain in my right flank for the rest of my life. But I still have another healthy kidney, so I consider myself lucky. Research shows that women are about 14 times more likely to die during or after giving birth than to die from complications of an abortion. This is, of course, not an argument against having babies, just proof that forced childbirth is a potentially risky proposition. Dr. Courtney Schreiber succinctly describes pregnancy as the ultimate stress test. Quote, pregnancy changes the pregnant person's physiology completely, the lungs, all the organ systems. It's a true physiological load to be pregnant, even for the healthiest person, end quote. 
women with pre-existing conditions often experience worsening trajectories throughout pregnancy and postpartum. And the potential for a bad outcome increases with every birth a woman has. Preeclampsia, hypertension, gestational diabetes, hormonal disorders, bone and tooth density loss. These are just some of the ways pregnancy and birth affect the body. Painful at best, life-threatening at worst. All the moms I know might joke about peeing if they try to jump on a trampoline, but pelvic floor disorders like incontinence and organ prolapse are actually not at all funny and are exacerbated by the numbers of babies a woman births. A third of women with three or more children have suffered perineal trauma. In the moral calculus of the right to life, we must also consider the psychological impact of giving a baby up for adoption. Justice Amy Coney Barrett argues that safe haven adoption laws eliminate the burden of parenthood for abortion seekers. But what of the lifelong burden of being forced to make that choice? It's completely irrational to think giving a baby up for adoption does not take an emotional toll, even for a woman who is certain that she does not want a child for any variety of reasons. To me, it's a kind of psychological torture to force women into this position. On a more subtle psychological level, illegalizing abortion has potential implications every time a woman of childbearing age has sex. Birth control fails. It's a statistical inevitability. So any time a woman in a state with restrictive abortion laws has sex, she'll be playing roulette. This might be exactly what Christian crusaders are after, but if so, they should be explicit about it. That they want not just to control women's reproductive choices, but also their sexual psyches. Making sex a potentially life-altering act and requiring women to go through pregnancy and birth regardless of its impact on their long-term mental and physical health is an undeniable abrogation of liberty. If you believe that all abortion is murder and support criminalizing it, then you have to accept that you have relegated women to the status of breeders rather than citizens with equal rights before the law. But pro-choice women and men who paint a black and white picture of abortion are disingenuous as well. I believe we all share a moral intuition that there's a difference between a four-week-old embryo and a fetus laid in the second or third trimester. To gloss over the complexity of ending a pregnancy is to deny the reality that women experience. We can acknowledge that this is a moral question. And even if we believe that only women should have the agency to resolve this moral dilemma, it's dishonest to equate getting an abortion to getting a tooth pulled. Even if you believe, as I do, that a woman should have a right to choose an abortion at any stage of pregnancy, it's important to engage in debate that acknowledges that there are well-meaning people who believe that there are competing moral claims between the woman and the fetus, and that even if it feels like a personal assault to me and those who share my political view, pro-life people may believe that they are acting in the best interest of women. But it's far simpler to be a movement that is pro-life than it is to be anti-liberty. Post-Roe, to ensure that state governments and the courts enforce abortion restrictions, the right to life movement is pivoting from activism to enforcement. 
They have to persuade the public to accept the criminalization of something a majority of Americans have long taken for granted as a foundation of our modern democracy. In the states that move to enact increasingly restrictive laws, questions around abortion move away from difficult issues of morality and toward control over women. In this context, many voters will see little room for ambiguity. And in swing states where support for abortion rights is in play, the public may quickly turn hostile when elected officials appoint judges that require local authorities to carry out assaults on individual freedom. Even those that are equivocal about abortion rights may be discomfited by accounts of teenagers, even children, forced to bear children that result from rape, of healthcare workers jailed for helping desperately poor women end their pregnancies, and of the inevitable death of some women from botched illegal abortions. Many voters are looking for political safe haven right now. Pro-life Democrats find no home in their party. And as the pro-choice movement takes on messaging that is increasingly uncompromising, it leaves no room for the large swath of the electorate that has nuanced views on how far into pregnancy abortion should extend. Pro-choice Republican voters haven't entirely ceased to exist either, and this could become a problem for their party as the pro-life agenda becomes increasingly radical. Pollsters gauge that a little over a third of Republicans disagree with their party on whether to outlaw abortion, while about a quarter of Democrats disagree with their party platform. Where do these voters go for representation or even civil debate? Either party having a litmus test regarding any particular issue is unhealthy for a functioning democracy. I can't help but hope that there might be a coalition built out of pro-life, pro-choice people, that we can lean into compromise together. Though it's against my principles to restrict choice at any stage of pregnancy, I'd be willing to accept some sane restrictions on abortion, joining most of the other developed countries around the world who use healthcare as the guiding principle of the issue above religion and politics. As the proud citizen of a state that has further codified pro-choice laws in the wake of Dobbs, I've asked myself if I'd be willing to sacrifice the far-reaching protections that I hold so dear in California in order to allow my sisters in Mississippi to walk the middle path with me. It runs counter to my instinct, but I think I would. And I think that there are many in the pro-life movement who are also willing to compromise their ideals in service of a socio-political truce. Perhaps out of this hot mess that we're in, the best we can hope for is a collective embrace of the fact that the abortion issue will always be painted in grayscale. If we are to save our imperfect union, we can hold a holy respect for women's bodily autonomy while also acknowledging that a baby starts as a mass of cells and grows very slowly over nine months. But it is indeed a baby, a precious human life in the making. We will never arrive at a shared set of facts, but we can aspire to share in the project of a cohesive and functional society. Fully embracing the fact that civil society is non-binary or not relating to, composed of, or involving just two things allows for degrees of truth, degrees of being to coexist if not peacefully, then at least in a delicate truce. 
Our work is to re-knit our national story into something more durable, something that inspires compromise in service of liberty, justice, and yes, even happiness for all.
It is late June 2022. I just read an article about a young woman in Poland whose story was written by others, pregnant with a fetus with chromosomal abnormalities. Polish abortion laws are severely restrictive. The fetus sickens and finally dies inside her. She dies as well because the doctors chose to wait until there was no fetal heartbeat before they would induce. They feared criminal charges from the state. What happens to a society that curtails a woman's sovereignty over her body and therefore her life's course? Of course there is a sovereignty due to the body that is out of one's control. The body, for instance, knows how to die and when to die, but to not be able to choose when and whether to birth a child when the choosing is a simple matter of two pills? So easy now for women to decide the when, the with whom, the maybe not now, and the maybe not ever. Who gets to be sovereign here? The majority of a Supreme Court who belongs to a church that has long desovereigned women. I am outraged, and at the same time, I feel helpless. Even with all the impersonal, antiseptic, and safe nature of post Roe v. Wade abortions, having an abortion takes a toll. I have no regrets for having had those two abortions. Jack and I needed a break. We needed the space, the time, and now, 50 plus years together, the unthinkable is here. Poland is right next door.